Welcome. Welcome, my friends, to another episode of Is That Really Legal? with Eric Rubin. First off, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of this podcast. I want to say that my wife, Holly, said, you should do a podcast. And I said, everyone has a podcast. It's too late. Uh, But I listened to her from her point of view and decided to do it. And I have been having a blast. And some people listening have been having fun too. So have the guests. So it's been really great. And I'm so glad that you're joining me. Today I'm talking with Barbara Michaels. She's a clown. And that's not an insult. She's really a clown. She's actually also an interfaith minister, the jester of the peace. Uh, you'll hear more about that. We have metaphysical conversations, roosters crow. We talk about Ivy League schools and clowning and theories of your audience and who is your audience and who isn't your audience. If you're interested in contacting me, go to isthatreallylegal.com and leave me a message. Check out Abe's Muffins. They've been supporting the show and they make great muffins as we're coming up on the one year anniversary i want to hear more from you subscribe rate leave ratings whatever but right now listen to my dear friend and an amazing clown barbara michaels barbara ann michaels welcome to is that really legal with eric rubin thank you is that really legal Yeah, you know, um, you and I have known each other a long time, but, you know, on and off for a long time. And I was trying to remember when we first met, I remember meeting you, I swear to God, it was in a post office, but it wasn't random. We were (laughs) set up as a friend meeting. Do you remember that or am I misremembering it? Uh, I don't remember that, but I would be totally delighted to create a memory with you for that moment. Well, I, I don't want so, to like, uh, lie. You, you, it was around 2010 because I was about to do an off-Broadway show on 42nd Street nearby to where we met. And I can't for the life of re- me remember who it was who said that we should meet. I don't you? remember, but I know, ha- but I have a feeling that if we went back and looked into our emails or voicemails or face mails or, or <laughs> Y mails or like whatever kind of mails it might be, that that information is probably still a record. I mean, I've had several new phones since then. So Same. if it was if it was a text, it might be gone into history. Yeah. However, if it was an email, it's probably still there, which begs the question. Is it really legal to mm. hold on to information for that law? That is the question. <laughs> it depends on the context. But I, I wanted to start off with, like, I know a variety of things about you, and a variety of things about you are a mystery. So I'm going to mix our, and match all of this stuff. I actually have no idea where you grew up. Where did you grow uh, up? Um, I grew up in New Jersey. Before I talk about that, when you say there are things about you that I know and things about you that are a mystery, I feel the same way about myself. I feel the same way about all other people. I think that we're always growing and changing in our lives and that like, as much as we're never, ever going to change, we're also going to change constantly every day. And that's one of the, my favorite paradoxes of being a person. Yeah, um, you know, on a scientific quantum level, and it would, uh, I would have bet we would 
talk like this, you and I, but uh, on a quantum <laughs> uh, physics level, on a submolecular level, we, our cells are constantly dying and being reborn. Um, we look the same or relatively the same. I can recognize you as you and you, me as me, but literally we are not the same person. All those cells that made us up are gone. Isn't that wild? And I think I, we're neither, well, I'll speak for myself. I am not stoned. I am not on any kind of chemical or alcohol or anything, but this sure sounds like a freshman year first <laughs> marijuana conversation. And, allegedly, and, that, allegedly. And, is, and was that legal then? And is it legal now? Oh, it wasn't legal it, then. It is. But legal it's legal now. now. Which um, is kind of cool. But anyway. Right? I mean, society does evolve. Uh, I had heard that it was seven years uh, with, with, when you get the new cells. I don't know if that's an urban legend or actual science. I haven't looked that deeply into it. Um, but when I think about new cells coming in and there's other cells that are already there you know, who've kind of been through the process, the new cells are like, hey, how do I be Barbara? How do I be Eric? <laughs> and the cells have been there for a while. They're like, I'll show you. Just here. This is how you do it. And then so on and so on and so on and so on. I, I don't know if there's an oral tradition when it comes to cells or if they already know how. Right. Like, our cells, like our mitochondria, just great storytellers. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> By the know. way, there anyway, is a yeah. there's a tradition that I don't get any phone calls all day until I'm on a Zoom or recording a show. And then my phone just won't stop ringing. It's wild. It, should be. it doesn't it matter should what be. time. So I, I do want to... Um, before people think this is going to be a ridiculous free-for-all, it is, obviously. <laughs> and there's a Zen saying, ride the horse in the direction it's going. So Absolutely. we're just, we're going to do that. So, but I still want to know, I, you grew up in Jersey. I grew where, up in New Jersey. I grew up in Piscataway. I was, uh, the my name of my doctor when I was born was Dr. Pearl. I always thought that was a good sign. Dr. Pearl? I, did I just hear a rooster crow where you are? You did, because I'm in Key West right now, and there are roosters in the streets. <laughs> so, you, so this is how it's going to go. You might get some phone calls, and I might have some roosters. And between the phone calls and the roosters, it all works out great. That's great. Um, <laughs> Key West, known for, uh, I'm not going to say that on my podcast, but it's a pseudonym for rooster uh, there's a decently sized gay community. We'll just let people think what they think. So you grow up in high school. You do high school in Jersey too? Uh, yeah, was it just a plain I, old public school or did you go somewhere it a, intriguing? It, it was, what an interesting question. Um, I, it was a wonderful public school and it was intriguing. And it was very, uh, it was very oriented around creativity as well as science and intellect. And it was during that time in the 80s where we still had craft classes and, and theater classes. There was so much arts in my most wonderful public school. I was quite grateful for it. I thought they did a really good job of educating us. I, I remained committed to education and being an educator from my time there. Yeah, you know, I have to say that I went to public high school in Long Island and it was a great experience. 
Um, and I think that you and I have similar upbringings. You're just on the other side of the water. But I, I think it would probably be similar. Um, were you always keen on being an artist or doing something creative? Like, did you have a sense of what your direction was going to be? So the what do you want to be when you grow up? My first memory of what do you want to be when you grow up was I wanted to be a magazine editor. Wow. And for, for kids listening, a magazine is like a website, but printed on paper. <laughs> yeah, back when it wasn't legal to have marijuana parties. Um, so the, uh, yeah, I wanted to be a magazine editor and I am a writer and I am, I'm currently creating a series of holidays every day that are personal growth oriented holidays. And that is a fantastic writing practice, which will ultimately come up, become a book. And I could see it becoming a magazine. There are things that I'm doing right now. So one of the things that's come out of that, being a magazine editor is basically like being a cultural curator and also being a writer. And I definitely have done many kinds of things where I've been a cultural curator in addition to being an artist, um, putting together self-expression events, putting together uh, events where a bunch of people come together and all express themselves creatively at the same time in whatever medium. Uh, I've always been a theater kid and I grew up being a musician. So I was a violin player, I was a flute player, I was a cello player. Um, I was also an athlete. I just basically was going to express myself in any way available at the moment, whether I was running or playing the violin or being on stage or drawing stuff or I'm just the drive to express myself has always been alive and well. And I've become extremely passionate about nurturing that in other people. And I would say one of the things that most drives my life is encouraging people's self-expression overall. I have to say that you, for people who don't know anything about you, you're like six feet tall, right? You're like the like, second really almost. tall person I've had, a tall woman I've had on this show. Um, and the reason I mentioned that is when you're tall, and I had this conversation with uh, a Swiss musician friend of mine who's six foot two or six foot three, Andrea Viget. For those listening, you can look on the website, is that really legal.com? Go back to the previous shows, you can meet uh, Andrea Viget. But in any event, I think tall people, regardless of their gender, have to make a decision at some point in their lives. They're either going to hide very badly how tall they are by kind of hunching, by sitting a lot, by, I don't know, somehow pretending they're not tall, or they're just going to embrace their physical being. And I feel like you do a great job of being tall. You know what I'm saying? Thank you. I had everything to do with that and nothing to do with that at all. Uh, <laughs> well, there's a lot of paradoxes. We're just all over this point. But, it, but I think being an athlete and being theatrical is certainly part of embracing your physical being. Oh, definitely. And, and the reason I became a long distance runner is because I was tall. And it, and it worked out to, to do that. Um, and I, so I have a memory of being changing. This is when we had gym class and everyone changed their clothes to go to gym class and then changed out of them again, which I haven't thought about in decades now. Yeah, so that was did. traumatic for me. 
Oh. Oh, we, we, can, but we, we don't can, need we to. Can... This is not my therapy session. This is a, <laughs> this is a show. Uh, anyway. And I, I remember that there was a group of girls who were commenting on the way that I got dressed because they were commenting that the way that I got dressed had a sort of dancerly quality to it. And then one of them said, she has to be that way because Barbara's tall and she has to, I don't remember what she said, but her idea was that because I'm tall, I have to navigate my own body in a very intentional way. And that would make me appear dancerly when changing my clothes in teenage gym class. Wow. And now I, <laughs> I, I, I want to say this as um, appropriately as possible. And I'm not going to ask you to do this. First of all, for, you know, people aren't going to see this. When we said you're coming to me from Key West, you are literally coming to me from the streets of Key West. You're in a van, it looks like. And so I wouldn't have you do this for that reason. Also, we're both in other relationships. I wouldn't, but there's a part of me that wants to watch you go through the motions as if it would be a performance, because I think it would be outstanding. I'm not talking about anything uh, inappropriate, as I said. No, I get you. Of, but the, the sort of like, uh, it would be, uh, you know, being a, I'm 6'3", I'm over 200 pounds, and I still, when I go into certain stores, I hear my mother's voice in my head saying, put your hands in your pockets. Like yeah. I used to go into fortune ops, not because she was afraid I was going to steal things, but because I just move uh, through space, sometimes a little too vigorously and expensive things could get knocked over and unfortunately purchased as a result of their damage. Oh, that's so funny. So I learned that, and to this day, like I'll go into Tiffany's, which, you know, you can't really break anything, is it? but I will in instinctively stick my hands in my pockets. Uh, wow. Yeah. So I, we have, uh, something in common there you know i first of all i just want to say this is probably said more than once i feel like you and i need to spend a couple of hours hanging out having coffee or or a meal it's not going to happen now i have tight time constraints so i'm going to have to push us along a little bit i'm going to get to brown university so you are another yeah. one of those people who's an ivy grad who strikes yep. me as not an Ivy grad because of my prejudices about what an Ivy League school is. What, oh, made so you go, what made you go to Brown? Were you looking to meet John Kennedy Jr.? Actually, you're too young for that. I, sorry, so that's not it. So what, yeah. what made you think Ivy or Brown? Or what was, the, what was that whole, the impetus for all of that? Um, my mother was bent on me going to an Ivy League school from the time that I was a little kid. I can't say more about that. I don't really know more about that, but it was a priority of hers. Um, I obviously I'm curious to know what your prejudices about people who go to Ivy League schools are. Uh, I went there because it's a creative haven for people who want to move something into the world. It's like a, it's a it's a creative haven for people who want to create the world. There isn't a core curriculum there. And I liked the freedom of that. I liked that it was a place where people were encouraged to express themselves in unique ways. And I wanted to be around other people who had it out for using that for the good in the world on a on a larger scale. You know, I have there's a lot some, of yeah. I have friends who went to other IVs, whether it was Princeton or Dartmouth or Cornell. Yeah. Or, and so 
But Brown, to me, has this reputation as being the hippie, artsy uh, Ivy League school. I don't think yeah. it's just me that thinks that. No, I don't think so. I mean, and also its proximity to RISD is going to have, um, Rhode Island School of Design is going to have um, just a lot of artistic influence because they share the same hill. Yeah, it's beautiful there. It's, it's like across the street from each other. Um, I, people who haven't been to Pro, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, a tiny, tiny place. First of all, great food scene in Providence. Second of all, you're only about an hour's drive from Boston and a couple, maybe three hours from New York City. So you kind of, you know, you have this little oasis, but you're really close to some other big cultural places, as well as its own center of the universe, kind of, right? Yeah, I, being there definitely feels like, or definitely felt like being on an oasis of just like, an, it's like an oasis of curiosity and, and, expansion, whether it's intellectual expansion, creative expansion, and ideally those things at the same time. I mean, I was studying modern culture and media, which is basically studying theories of representation of people in the media and uh, creating videos. And I was very much in the, in the, in the, in an artistic, in a little, it was a little bit of a rarefied artistic scene. Uh, and at the time, what I was studying was so Kind of devoid of, of of soul and grace and heart, which is strange because it's not my experience of the place overall. That I, I just took some time off, got myself recentered, came back, and then really loved. I loved everything from that point. But there was a, a little bit of a discovery journey I had to do, and I think that that's more common than than people will say. It's like I, I was I was at this place. I knew the place had something for me. I wasn't accessing it to the degree that I wanted to. I think part of that was because. When I got there, I realized that kids who'd gone to private school already knew how to structure themselves, and that sometimes kids who went to public school didn't have to learn how to structure themselves in their own way, especially kids who went to sleepaway boarding school. Like boarding I had that experience, school. too. So I went to a kind of hoity-toity, not quite Ivy, but private college where a lot of um, uh, kids who went to like Choate or, these very, or Lawrenceville or these very famous prep schools um, if they didn't go to Ivy school, they went to literally my college is part of what's known as the Little Ivies in uh, New England, a place called Union College. And I had the experience that the kids who went to prep school were really clear about like how to handle uh, social time and study time and class. Like they just really knew how to play the game in a way that public school kids like myself didn't know how to play the game. Because ultimately, yeah. once you learned how to play the game, you got in the groove and you did it, but it was very awkward getting into a little like a long distance, like finding the pace of the pack. I'm not a racer, I'm not a runner, unless something's chasing me, but I've seen people race on television and it feels like when the pack gets into a pace, then everybody decides to kind of get in there at that same pace until someone makes a break or falls off, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I hear yeah, what you're saying. Yeah, yeah and, I appre and I appreciate what you're saying. It was, when I think about that, I think, okay, well, what is preparatory school really for? Preparing you to, to make your own choices and structure your own life and being able to, and be able to handle yourself as you get out there and create the world. Uh, so one of the things I, I, in addition to some other things that I've done, I also have been an arts educator. I was an, I was a, 
theater clown, writing, improvisation teacher for people of all ages and a lot of children for about 18 years. Uh, and one of the things I noticed, so I would teach in schools that had amazing resources, like a full-time sound person for their 300 seat dedicated theater. And then I would teach in, and then I would teach in schools where we had class in the hallway because we didn't have a room and the ceiling was leaking in the hallway on our class. And I can tell you that there is zero difference in the creativity of the children at all. Zero right, difference right. in the creativity. What I did notice is that kids who had more resources were more often, and this is not gonna be 100%, it's just a trend, uh, were more often taught to create the world. What are you going to do to make this world? And kids with fewer resources were taught what are you going to do to get a job and fit into the world? And the difference between being taught to create the world and fit into the world is a, it's just a, a 180 different experience of approaching life. And I was very moved by that. I've been having some interesting conversations with a friend of mine on, on Long Island, actually, who's, um, who's a principal and a vice, or vice principal in a school. And, uh, and looking at how, having worked in both kinds of schools, looking at how is he being a leader towards kids with fewer resources being taught to create the world versus fit into it. And I, I'm, I'm very passionate about that. I mean, my definition of a fulfilling life is finding one's gifts, giving one's gifts, and being appreciated for one's gifts while we're still alive. And then creating a legacy that those things can continue on after. And when I look at what does or doesn't create the ground for someone even to have the ability and focus to find their gifts. It has a lot to do with resources and, and not, know, not 100%, but a lot. I've had a front row seat to education, especially this year. My wife's an educator in the largest school district in maybe the world, certainly in the country. There's a million students, a million students. And recently the chancellor of that school district, <laughs> chancellor of the New York City Department of Education left. But in his three years that he was there, one of his biggest fights or efforts was to uh, not have all the resources go to a very small percent of the highest. Uh, you know, New York has some specific schools that you have to test into when you go to junior high or even high school, such as Bronx High School of Science or Brooklyn Tech. There's a few others, I'm not gonna name them all. But uh, the populations uh, racially, ethnically are very divided and incredibly unequal for a variety of reasons. And he was trying to whip a U-turn with the Queen Mary in that he was trying to get people to see that there would be, it would be extremely helpful to the whole city if we could bring more resources to bear to the underserved, the lower, who weren't um, underachievers, but who were underprovided for. The differences in the schools within miles of each other is astounding. I know you know this, and just you know, for my listeners. And I seen firsthand, I won't go into it because I don't want to violate confidentialities, but I've seen conversations where very privileged people pay lip service to what they want to have happen in their communities. But then when they see it could potentially affect them or they will have to take part in the change, um, they get very defensive of their position and they are suddenly not as generous 
in dealing with these issues. And I think we all need to take a step back. And, uh, you know, I, I think that nothing changes uh, unless we change some very fundamental aspects of our system, be it education or other aspects of the system. What, what do you think? I mean, is that what you, I mean, as you're talking about the hallway with the leaking roof versus the, you know, specially designed theater, I've been in both those schools, not literally, but, you know, figuratively. And I, it rings true to me. And I think that, you know, it's a miracle when you see people, you know, come out of certain situations. Look, they can't know that it's okay to be a painter if they've never been to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and seen, you know, a Basquiat hanging there. You know, like if they've never seen that as even a possibility, how can they come up with that? If they've never heard Yo-Yo Ma play the cello, how can they even know that's something that they might want? It's like, you don't, you know, you don't know if you like hot dogs unless you taste the hot dog. I, I just feel like we have to give experiences to people. And, you know, you're not just born ready to do your thing. Uh, I think I may have just overstepped myself psychically here, but you get what I'm saying. I think that I, I, my new enthusiasm has, uh, has caused me to vibrate at a high enthusiasm level. Let me back up a little bit to well, say you, it, yeah. yeah. Well, you, you I, went on to get further educated. I mean, you, you have a master's in fine arts, right? I do, I and, do. And you are the only clown I actually know. And I don't mean that derogative poorly. I, you know, it's Sasha Baron Cohen, I believe, studied clowning and, and sophisticated clowning like buffoonery. And what I, what I find amazing is the more I learn, the more fascinating the world gets. So, you know, when someone is a buffoon, it, it could be derogatory, but in fact, buffoons are a very specific type of clown. And I'm not telling this, Bar Barbara knows more about clowning than I will ever know, but I'm just saying for the general public, clowns have a very specific purpose of entertaining, educating, you know, satirically uh, jabbing at the man. Uh, there's a rich history of jesters, uh, well, I mean, does, is that something that you are fascinated by or is that beside the point, Chief? Oh, clown theater is uh, one of my spiritual practices. So, and I'm gonna tie this back to education too because one of the things that I was doing in that the great variety of schools is teaching clown theater. I was teaching clown theater to people, to children of a wide variety of resourcedness, um, as we were just speaking about. And access to humor, the earlier that people can get access to humor as a tool, the better life is. That is a huge grand statement that I made that I stand behind 159.5%. True in my experience, by the way. Can I just yeah. interject? I have to interject for a second. I okay. grew up in a very funny family. My father, you yeah. was big. And you know I'm funny. Um, I'm not you saying are so that funny. I'm funny. But I went to stand-up comedy shows before you were old enough. We were at the Catskills, and my father snuck me into the nightclub. I was like eight or ten to see guys like Dick Capri and all these like people you nobody ever heard of. And because there was an 18 year old drinking age and I was wearing a little suit or a tie and a jacket or whatever. 
And I remember specifically when the waitress said, I'm sorry, sir, but you know, they have to be 18 or over. And my father turned to her and he said, oh, he's a midget. And they didn't, <laughs> now, by the way, I know that's not PC. I could have said I was a little person. I don't want to get all caught up in that. But I then- That's fantastic. Yeah, I then saw stand-up comics say things I couldn't believe people were allowed to say. And I saw very serious old people lose their minds laughing hysterically. And it was incredibly valuable. And then watching people like Flip Wilson, you know, have their own variety shoes. You're a man of color in the 60s, early 70s. I mean, that's breakthrough stuff. Humor as a way to break through. So anyway. Yeah, I, so I humor. Yeah, humor. So my identified mission in life at this moment, knowing that I have more life and may have other missions in life that get identified. My mission in life at this moment is to represent the three tools that I have discovered create sanity in me for other humans because I'm not the only human. And I believe that on, on the heart level, we basically all work in a very similar way. And I've had my ups and downs with deep sadnesses, depressed times, uh, anxieties, all manner of things. Whenever feeling alone, feeling, feeling too close to people, feeling too far away from people, basically you know, so many different kinds of available emotional experiences that have been alive long enough that I'll go around the wheel and most humans will. What I have discovered is that whenever I'm off kilter, out of whack, feeling nuts, if I turn to art or love or humor, I will get back on track. And that's not I, somebody else's track, that's my own track. I will get back on the track of being available to myself, being available to my life, which means I'm then available to my gifts, which then means I'm available to other people, which means I'm available to my ripple effect. I believe all of us have a ripple effect that is ours to live out. And that goes back to what's my definition of a fulfilling life. So clown theater, so some of art, love and humor are my spiritual practices. I, in, yes, I have an MFA. I also am an, uh, an ordained interfaith minister. Um, I became an ordained interfaith minister because I moved to New York being like, I have to start over, what am I gonna do? And then I remember that I had performed some weddings for some friends a few years back, really enjoyed it, but never did anything with it. I became an internet minister, which is where you go online and say, I would like to be an, an, a minister. And they're like, okay, go ahead. Uh, and that's how people generally get ordained for the day to marry their friends, which is a trend right now. And so when I started, so whatever I do, I make it into art. I had a car, I made it into an art car. I started doing weddings, and then I started marrying people to themselves in the street. I love uh, that, by the way. Can you, I, I'm going to interrupt you because yeah, there's a lot ahead. here. You yeah. are known as the jester of the peace. I am. And is that jesterofthepeace.com if people want to check it, it out? It is. It is jester of the peace. J-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-T-H-E-P-E-A-C-E. So that name came from my friend, Michael Coran, uh, in, who lives in Boston. And I was a clown and became, an, and became a minister to do an interfaith minister. Well, I wasn't, an, I was internet minister at the moment to, be, to start up in the wedding industry, which is also, hint, hint, a theater job you never age out of. Um, and, an audience, and an audience interactive art experience for everyone, which I don't necessarily tell everyone, although I just did some on a podcast. Uh, and he said, ah, oh, 
you should be the gesture of the piece. He's a very wordsmith kind of a guy. So I would love to take credit for gesture of the piece. So I, I, he has credit for coining the name and I have credit for coining the life, basically. What you, but what I've seen you do is you've gone in the street at certain events and you mm -hmm. marry friends to friends, not legally, but you also get people to declare their love for themselves. You make it a, you know, people talk about performance art in a very dismissive way because we have this view of like the 60s, everybody was like tripping and put flowers on their face and danced around and called it performance art. But the reality is that you do some very interesting and valuable performance art, especially over the last four years where I felt like love was in very short supply and there was a lot of anger and mistrust and I feel like watching you, because we didn't hang out a lot during these years, but seeing you on social media and other ways, I feel like what you decided was, well, here's a perfect place for my art and here's what I'm going to do. And you'd literally go into like Central Park with your clown nose and a tall hat or whatever, and you'd go up to people with a mirror and have them look at themselves and declare their love for themselves and you'd give them a certificate or something. And I'm like, that is so not what people expect today. And there's a certain innocence without naivete. And I, I really think that's important because important. you weren't like thinking, I'm going to change the entire world today by planting this little flower. But what you were doing your thing and you were bringing your loving self to your art and then launching it forward. I may be overstating this. I may be putting words in your mouth. I mean, but that was my sense of you. Is that yeah. accurate? Yes, it's Thank you. Thank you for seeing me that way. Uh, I deeply believe in the ripple effect of moments. So if I have a moment, say I voted for someone to be president, whatever they wanted, which is also a project that I toured, I got a grant for and that I toured to, set, to seven states. And it's very interesting regionally what people will want to be voted president for. Like in New Orleans, people had a greater tendency to want to be president of things related to social services. In Miami, it was more countries. In DC, people wanted to be, uh, wanted to get in, wanted to be co-presidents, which I thought was totally fascinating. Uh, I believe and stand by that if we have an uplifted moment where you feel seen, heard, and celebrated, even for a moment that your next moment is more open and who knows what's gonna happen in that moment. So living in New York for 11 or 12 years, however long it's been now, New York feels to me like a city where people are waiting for it to be their lucky day. People go to New York in order for it to be their lucky day. Like today is gonna be the day. I am gonna be walking down the street with my groceries. I'm gonna turn left. I'm gonna literally bump into someone and they're either going to marry my cousin give me a job or cast me in their film. Like today is my day and I am ready to be discovered. Like everyone in New York is kind of ready for that all the time. Uh, and so when I was, was doing a lot of street theater in New York, and then the next thing is to have teams of people doing these projects globally. When I was primarily working in New York, I felt like I was helping fulfill on people's dream of the cool thing happening to them that day. Like I was gonna be the cool thing. I was gonna, be, I was gonna discover them that day. And um, so if I have a moment and I vote for someone to be president of their creativity, for example, they feel loved up. When they turn away from me, they're looking up and not at their phone. Who are they going to meet? What are they going to see? What are they going to think of? And that's not that it's not the same as changing the world, 
but it's changing this moment and changing this moment leads to the next moment. And that ultimately does change what someone creates or gives people an opportunity. I've married people to their soul, to money, to thinly sliced Nova, to the town of East Hampton, <laughs> to a can of soda. I once married this woman on Governor's Island to a can of soda and she wanted to take the whole thing as a joke. And she said, oh, I'm gonna marry this can of soda. One of my superpowers as a human being is to be able to meet people in a, in a moment, in, in a creative and open way that's so fun that people have the ability to go deep really fast because there's not one continuum. It's not like there's the happy continuum and the sad continuum. There's just the continuum. And if the more someone, it's like the more someone has suffered in life, the more they can be joyful, the more they've laughed, the more they can cry. It's like once your channel is open, you're open for anything, which is why the best time to say something really serious to an audience is right after they've laughed because they're open and willing and they're ready for anything. So, but going back to her, she's like, I'm gonna marry this can of soda. <laughs> okay, so three minutes later, doing this street ceremony, this can of soda came to represent her bubbly friends. And if she ever felt personally flat, she could drink in her bubbly friends and, um, and be renewed, like have her bubbliness restored. And that was really meaningful. And she was not expecting that. Uh, my friend, Deborah Kaufman, who's one of my dearest friends, uh, who's um, been a hospital clown for oh, probably 30 years. She runs the Healthy Humor Hospital Clown Organization. She says, Barbara, you can make, you can find meaning in anything. And it's true. Well, I think, well, what I love about that story is that yeah. you could have lost with that person very easily. You know, having been a stand-up, um, a lot of times the mistake that a stand-up makes is they, they see one person not laughing and they just focus all their attention on getting that person to laugh and they somehow think they're bombing. When in fact, like that person is either not their person or yeah. that person is going to get those jokes later. Or it's just like, you got to trust the universe is doing what it's supposed to be doing. It's not for you to put your hand in the gears. And it seems to me like rather than trying to get that person to get serious about marrying someone, by the way, while you're wearing a, like a red nose and clown makeup, um, you know, you oh, hold on. You met I, I, I'm not wearing clown makeup and I'm not always oh. wearing a red nose. Sometimes I'm wearing a red nose. I'm generally wearing a costume. Uh, okay. wearing, a red wearing a red nose helps people to um, get in an alternate universe with me. Right. I don't, uh, because my artwork is so much about heart connection, I don't do the clown, I don't do what might be called traditional clown makeup. Gotcha. Because, because I'm focused on uh, very, I'm focused on very sincere connection and I, and I, I don't want my costuming to get in the way of that. Got it. Thank you for clearing that up and sorry yeah. to, to be yeah. incorrect with you. But I, what you were able to do was say yes. I mean, if you've done improv, and I'm sure you have, and I know I've done a, a ton of improv. So, yes. you know, the classic knowledge uh, or the biggest lesson of improv is yes and. Whatever's coming your way, you say yes and. And either that was another crowing or was there a horse name winning? You got a lot no, going on. No, that's the rooster. One of okay. the funniest things is that you just said one of the great, uh, one of the great tenets of improv is yes and, which means I'm in Key West. There are roosters. That means they're going to be roosters on our podcast. And we yes that, like, yes, and we're including roosters because you wouldn't believe me. I could tell you I was in Key West, but you don't know for sure unless there's roosters. And you can know that for the future. Now, here in Brooklyn, <laughs> some people have roosters on their roofs. But, uh, yes, roosters. 
<laughs> hipsters with roofsters. That was very I nice. I know, I had to. Uh, but, but anyway, my point was that it's just like, um, because you were able to say yes to that, it helped because the more you resisted her, if you resisted her at all, then yeah. it, no, you guys not would not really. have had a great experience. That's my point yeah. is if you resisted her, this would not have been the experience it ultimately was, right? What, what I'm always doing is looking for the open door. And if I don't find one, it's no problem. Sometimes the door inches open, sometimes the door flies open, sometimes the door flies off. Uh, I have developed a theory after 25 years of being a street performer about how uh, there's four qualities, there's four kinds of people in the street all the time. And I would like to share it because it bears yes. on what we were just talking about. Uh, this is a theory that I invented that I will claim uh, full joy for. And this is what it is. So people think you're gonna go, so I, I run a, I on and off run a program called Clown Curious where I'll take people into Central Park or sometimes I'll run it at a conference or sometimes I'll run it in an educational or at a university. Clown Curious where people, I'll give people a little bit of basic interactive, clown interactive training and how to, uh, how to go for, how to create humor basically and then in this particular case, we would go out in Central Park and put on clown noses and just have plain clothes on otherwise and allow ourselves to melt into finding joy with other people. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's wonderful. Th what I'm about to tell you is something that I will also tell them um, as, we, as we go out. So some people are so ready that they'll do anything you want, basically, they just basically want you to lick their face. You can sit on their lap, lick their face, and they're totally happy. I mean, not literally, but basically, you know, energetically lick their face. And I call them, this is the first category. These are the lickers, the lickers. You should know that also, in addition to outside, all these four qualities, kinds of people are also present, present in any talk you will ever give, any audience you ever have, even among the people who listen to this podcast right now. Um, so the lickers. The second group is the watchers. They want to watch what you're doing, and they, but they don't want you to do it to them. Their joy is fully in watching. And if you ask them to participate, they will say no, but they are totally happy watching. They're the watchers. Third group, the hiders. These are the people who are totally watching you, completely happy, but they don't want you to know. If, you, if you're about to find out that they're watching you, they will turn away, go away, get on their phone. They don't want to be acknowledged. The watchers want to be acknowledged for watching. The hiders don't want you to know. And the fourth group, and the fourth group of people just don't care. It's not their bag. <laughs> they're, ha they're having a fight with someone on their phone, or they're having a bad day, or they're getting ready for their audition, or they're in a dream state, or who knows, or whatever. It's just not their bag. And right. that's fine. So, and it's not like, so there's liquors, watchers, hiders, and the I don't cares. Or the I, I don't, or it's not for me right now, or whatever the word for that is going to be. Sure. Um, and one of the things about street performance and all performance, really, is that if we think we're, if, if, we, if we encounter an I don't care, that's, it doesn't matter. We're not failing because everyone didn't participate. If I go out and create a dance scene with five people who are exploring what it means to, to find joy with other people through, some spontaneous clown theater, I will tell them that a whole bunch of people aren't gonna participate at all. 
And that's because yeah. they're either hiders because they don't want you to know or they don't care. Our only job, this is our only job, is to find the liquors and lick them. Because if we find the liquors and lick them, everybody else is happy. I lick a liquor, the watcher is happy they get to watch, the hider is happy they get to hide, and the person who didn't care didn't care anyway. That's our only job is to find the liquors and lick them. And that is also true for everything else in life, whether one is dating and then it has even more humorous connotations or, look, or going for, to get, doing, getting a gig or doing some professional work or, or choosing who's gonna participate on my nonprofit board, whatever it was, there's always liquors, watchers, hiders, and I don't cares. And we're not always that way. One day I could be, uh, one day I could be a liquor. The next day I could have had some bad news. I'm a hider. I still want to see, or I could not care. And we're always yeah. going to switch between those. And it's, it's, it's a really helpful frame. I really like that because um, there's no survival in it. You know, I, in my dating life, I am now married for the third and final time. But in my dating life, uh, such as it was earlier on, I really cared and I didn't see it the way I would see it now, the way I saw it before I ultimately met my wife, which was that, you know, you get, you try people on, you know, like, like a, an outfit and it's like, well, it just doesn't fit. It's not personal. It's not, it's not even, I'm too fat for this outfit. It's just, this is not my outfit or I'm too thin for that. It's not my outfit. So that's fine. And you don't, you don't throw the clothes on the floor and scream at them. You don't go to your analyst and try to figure out why you still haven't found the right outfit. You just go back out and you try on more outfits. I think there's an element of that in what you're talking about. But I also know that you have done some speed dating stuff with some of this, which, um, and again, that was a long time ago that you did it. You may have done it since, because um, like I said, I've known you well, about, oh, it's 11 years. God, I have no more, sense yeah, of more time. Yeah, I moved no to New York and uh, I moved to New York in 2009 and I met you pretty early on. Yeah, so maybe it was then. That's, that seems about yeah. right. Yeah. But it seems yeah, like they, I've known you longer. Well, in a good they, way. Yeah, I think we have one of those friendships where it's like, I know you. You come from the same planet I do and you speak the same language that I didn't think anyone else knew except all the people like me. Great. Yeah, I think it's kind yeah, of like that. I um, you know, it, we're always we're always going, we're always circling through these energetic states. And I, I, I want to take this back to creating the world versus fitting into the world. I, once we identify what our gift is. And once we have the time and space to do so, and that's a whole larger conversation about how to create time and space for people so they can even find their gift, and it's not a luxury to find their gift of necessity, then uh, our only job is to find who wants what we want, find who wants what we have to offer right now. And I've recently been thinking about the buffet and, and even combining it with faith, like buffet, which is a word I just was playing around with, uh, hopefully invented, who knows, I have to look on the internet. Uh, which is the idea that I'm going to believe that there's always a sumptuous buffet available to me. And if I'm not looking at it, I just have to pick up my head and look somewhere else. If, I'm, if I am looking at an I don't care, if I, I can perform my heart out to an I don't care, but that's like looking at an empty plate because they, 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 that's not going to feed me right now. I'm not, we're not going to feed each other right now. If right. I just pick up my head and turn the other way and there's a liquor who's just begging for attention, all I had to do was look up, look up at the other way. And I, I had this, I had a kind of 
I, one of my favorite combinations is aha plus haha, which is an insight plus humor. Um, and uh, I will end up, I, I will uh -huh. end up I, like using that going forward, but the um, realizing, realizing that I had gotten stuck over and over and over again, trying to give my gifts where they weren't needed or wanted, looking at a scarce plate when if I just picked my head up, there was so much love for me, so much support, so much opportunity, so much creativity, so much me being met. I just wasn't looking there. And anything that I can do to represent this buffet, having, like having faith that the buffet is there, even if I'm looking in the wrong place and getting support to look and find it, I, I want to represent that, I, or I am representing that. You know, I love that. As, it's as, not as just, a truth. I mean, it, it's so practical. Because while I love it as an artistic thing or as a humorous thing or a spiritual thing, you know, you can talk about people at businesses or professions. You know, I'm an attorney and I decided I'm not everybody's attorney. You know, for a while I was trying to be like, if somebody came to me, I'm like, yeah, I'll figure out a way to keep you as a client because I'll, you know, it's a way that I can, you know, make a living and take care of people. But there are people I should not be representing. There's work I should not be doing. And it's really not, they're not my people. You know, my clients are very specific. You know, there's a lot of showbiz stuff or contract stuff. I'm great at that. I really take care of these people. And that's my bandwidth of people. And being really clear about an audience and being clear about, you know, also who need, like just seeing where you're not supposed to be and acknowledging it is not a failure. It's really quite the opposite. It's great information. When you see a I don't care, you know, I, I see not only do you not lose with it, you win with it. You're like, oh, wow, good data, clarity. You know, I, I, it helps me because now I know I got to go look for the liquors because yes, they're waiting yep. for me. If I and don't get them. to the liquors, they're going to be disappointed. Yeah, and they're going to be dry because they need to be licked by you. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, um, I do not lick people as an attorney or it's not, <laughs> we're using your terminology. Just is that clear. legal? Uh, it's, a, it's a metaphor anyway. It's a metaphor. Consensual licking is legal. Completely. One of the things, so what it comes down to is that it's not personal. It's not personal. Someone being an I don't care or a hire right now, it's not personal. Somebody being a watcher and not being a licker right now, it's not personal. And when I know that and when I can support other people to embrace that, then the buffet of failure that we might be trying to feast at just like disappears into the super cool theatrical floor. The and, buffet and, of failure, by the way, not yeah. appetizing. No, not appetizing. You're going to stand there for a long time going hungry, but just by turning in a different direction, oh, look, there's a whole, there's a whole, there's a whole restaurant full of liquors over there that I, I could be with. And it's, not having people's disinterest be personal is such a freedom. And one of the things about clown theater that is so vital for me, and one of the reasons why it's a spiritual practice and a sanity practice for me, and a spiritual practice and a sanity practice are very close together for me, they're practically the same thing, is that clown theater allows us to have fun with things that are hard to look at. It helps humor in itself, helps people see things that are hard to see. There's a reason why there's a bunch of people who get their news from late night comedy shows because there's some, been some hard news and it's easier to take it or even look at it or even peek at some of this hard news through a humorous lens. I'm, it's not, I am one of those people. Yeah. Trevor Noah, 
and John Oliver right. are the guys that I pretty, I mean, you know, I read the New York Times. It's not like, uh, and I sometimes do some other things. I, I educate myself, but you're absolutely right. A spoonful of sugar to quote a Disney song, right? Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, but even other people, we're not doing it on a daily basis. You know, you and I grew up with people like George Carlin, you know, or Richard Pryor, who, you know, we'd laugh and then they'd say something was like, oh, wow, that went in extra deep because it was yeah. important and I was open for it. Yeah, and, and if you watch them, you'll see that they plant zingers very intentionally. People laugh, they plant zingers, people laugh, they plant zingers, and they say things that you're not supposed to say because they can, because humor makes that. One of the things that clown, clown theater takes even further is that clown theater is a physical art form. And uh, I've seen a few different studies where the numbers are close to this, not exactly this, but more or less, the average of the studies I've seen is that 80% of communication is nonverbal all the time. So I'm participating in a physical art form that communicates my love, my honesty, my willingness to mess up, play with weird rules, look at society, uh, reach for love again, have forgiveness. Like, clown theater is the most vulnerable, gorgeous, strengthening, freeing art form I've ever found, which is why I have a home in it. What would have those qualities for another person? There's a lot of different art forms that could do it. For me, it's clown theater. And so I've made, I've, I've made all these different parts of my life out of it because it is one of my homes. I got to tell you, we're running a little low on time. So that's why I'm going to be interjecting. I just remembered yeah. some of the greatest, most tragic Shakespearean pieces have clowns in them, either specifically called clowns or characters who come in to lighten the mood because some heavy stuff just went down or is about to go down. I mean, this is yeah. not new. It's no, important. it's ancient. But it's I do want to. And it's human. I, I want to tell you that one of the reasons I have this show, or one of the things about the show, I I'm really trying to have a lot of women on and people of color, LGBT people, just because I feel it's an underserved community. Not that, you know, a million people will hear this, but you don't know. Um, but I do also want to talk about, um, you're a woman in, uh, I don't know if I call it show business or art or creativity. You know, you've uh, been doing this for decades now. Um, I've had conversations with uh, everyone from, you know, Hollywood reporter editor who helped break some of these Me Too stories all the way to young actresses in their early 20s talking about getting groped all the way across the board. I, you strike me as someone who is not angry, but um, I'm not saying that. You, have you seen a shift? Did you have to put up with a lot of crap because you're a woman or do you feel like you've been able to glide above it? Like what's been your experience? Uh, do you mean in specifically, in the, in the, specifically in the clown theater world? I, I think just as an artist and an entertainer and a woman. Um, so the art form that I'm studying can potentially be studied in a variety of ways. And I've chosen to study it with people who are deeply heart-centered, who are out for humanity. And By so the way, I, I love that you say you study it because to me, yeah. you're a practitioner, you're an artist, but what you see yourself as is you're a lifelong student. Always. There's, there, we will always stay the same and we will always change. Therefore, what I have access to through Clown Theater and what I have access to give others access to through Clown Theater will continue to change. I, I, I was in Germany many years ago doing some hospital clown theater, pediatric hospital clowning. 
And I remember two of the performers then, I think they had, were in their 40s at that, that they said, good clowns are 40. Good clowns are 40 <laughs> and above. Because you have to have been alive long enough to have compassion for all the things that happen for people in life. Yeah, um, man, so I... the, so I've chosen to put myself in situations that were um, about humanitarian aims. I would say that I've rarely come across the kind of level of misogyny. I, I maybe one, one teacher. Uh, yeah. I I've, I've, because I'm a heart centered artist, I've, and my mission is humanitarian expansion. I've put myself in situations where people are out for that and want to include as many kinds of humans in the scene as possible, because that's what clown theater is really about. Clown theater is about the experience of being human and all humans are included and no humans are left out. Like no humans are left out of humor. It doesn't make any sense. Human and humor even begin with the same three letters. I, I do want to say that we're running out of time very quickly. First, yeah, I want to apologize you. for having it be a little insane today. I'm just going to reveal this to the crowd. You know, I'm doing this out of our one bedroom apartment where our two bedroom apartment where I'd normally have a whole studio set up is being renovated. So my wife has been coming and going out of the room while I'm doing this in various states of undress, <laughs> getting ready for other things. So no one's going to see it, obviously, and you didn't know that, but I was gesticulating wildly and getting, so I apologize to you. Um, yeah, but hey, uh, perfect. That, that's a clown scene, right? Here you are. You're in the one, you're in, so clown theater is about take the limitations and have fun with them because we all have limitations. You're in a one-bedroom apartment. There's construction. Your wife is naked just outside of, the, outside of the frame, and yet you're keeping your composure. I am sitting in a car in Key West with roosters. Like the whole, and yet we've had a vital conversation about some of the things that matter most in life. And I, that's, I, that's what it is. I, I love it. Is there anything that you wanted to talk about today that you feel you didn't get a chance to talk about? Which for you could be, oh my God, that, that could be nothing or it could be everything. Is this a very dangerous question for me, but I'm asking it. I, we talked about many of the things that are central to me. Um, what I didn't, get to say yet is that out of out of my life as a clown theater artist, a performance artist, an improv actor, and a ordained interfaith minister having performed 500 weddings, um, I'm now creating a congregation for the humor arts called the House of Holy Humor. And, and where is that going to live? It lives At the moment, it lives online because it's the nature of the world for it to live online. And sure. the House of Holy Humor, so when I was primarily an interfaith minister doing art on the side, people would be like, you do costume weddings. You just married those people as Glinda the Good Witch of the North. You did a wedding as the Grim Reaper on Halloween. You are not for real, and, <laughs> which is true. You do helicopter weddings. You're not a real interfaith minister. I don't know, what, like that's not legal basically. And this goes back to the theme of your show. Sure. And then when I'd be doing performance art in the art world, people would be like, you are, you're a therapist. You make therapy art. You're not, real artists are edgy. And you're not that, you're, you're way too soft. You're, that's not legal, that is not legal art. So I, I, I was so frustrated by that, trying to fit myself in, that what the House of Holy Humor is, it allows me to define my own space. Within the House of Holy Humor, all parts of me are included, no parts are left out. And I define my space wherever I go. And it's my, the, 
the House of Holy Humor is built on the, the three pillars of art, love, and humor, the things that create sanity, society, caring, community, and availability to our lives. And I'm launching that now. And it's a tremendous honor to be able to speak with you today about a whole bunch of the things that contributed to the journey of my having found that. Because this people, is the beginning of that. How can people follow you on that journey or, you know, is there a website you've created right yeah. now? Uh, so right now, the Jester of the Peace website, which we named before, J-E-S-T-E-R-O-F-T-H-E-P-E-A-C-E.com. That's where the House of Holy Humor lives at the moment. And then uh, I've, uh, Jester of the Peace is my, is my handle across social media. It's my Instagram handle. You can find me on LinkedIn under Jester of the Peace, um, uh, on Facebook, on, um, on, uh, on YouTube, Jester of the Peace. And, I, and my vision is to ordain gestures of the peace internationally and have people all around the globe who understand the primacy of art, love, and humor and the very particular way that these arts are practiced in a way that opens people's hearts and, and creates availability to have our gifts given, which is ultimately my definition of a fulfilling life. Wow, Barbara Ann Michaels, that is exactly the note we should end on. I am so grateful you had some time to talk to me today. It's lovely yeah, to you. see your face and to talk to you. I hope you and your guy are having a blast down there. Please be safe. Thanks so much for being on Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I really appreciate you. Thank you, Eric. It's been a joy. It's been intellectually and creatively inspiring. And, uh, and yes to more. That was Barbara Ann Michaels, clown. Did you ever think you'd learn so much about creativity, clowning audiences? You can find her at jesteroftheapeace.com. Uh, remember, we're approaching the one-year mark on this uh, podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. Go to isthatreallylegal.com. You will find a place to leave your comments which is really cool. Um, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate this podcast. All of that would be awesome. You can also find Abe's Muffins in great places. And when you do, you can buy them and shove them in your face, and you will be so happy that you did because they're allergen-free and they taste great. We got more excellent episodes coming up, including an episode where I am interviewed. That's right, the one-year anniversary. And uh, what's been going on in your life for the past year? Anything? Uh, I hope you got the vaccine. If you haven't, get it. Are you wearing a mask? Do it. Be safe, take care of yourself, and take care of everybody around you. And we'll be talking soon. Bye-bye.